0: Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. This past Wednesday was the seventy-fifth anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Uh, I'm sure you took notice of that. That was one of those events that uh, like the assassination of President Kennedy and like the events of 9-11 the people who were around for that, people who were alive and could uh, knew what was going on, that I've spoken to tend to remember where they were when they heard the news, and particularly the speech that that followed. That it was something that changed our history. And it was the event that ushered us into World War II. Now, on that morning, there were uh, two privates who were watching radar on a point in Hawaii. They saw something, they were about to get off work. But one of them saw something that he just couldn't believe. He wasn't real experienced with radar. But he couldn't understand what he was seeing. And so he called in to uh, a superior who said, uh, oh, don't worry about it. You see, he knew of some planes that were uh, going to be flying into the country, and he just assumed that those were the ones that this private, inexperienced private, was seeing. Now, knowledge of the attack at that point couldn't have prevented the attack. They were 130-something miles away, but it's possible that it might have saved some of the 2,400 plus lives that were lost that day because of the total surprise. Here we are in Advent, and when Jesus came, there was a lot of warning. Now, we don't particularly call it warning. We tend to call it prophecy. Because in the Old Testament, time and time again, what we are talking about this month was prophesied, was foretold that it was going to take place. And there were those who heard that prophecy who said, oh, don't worry about it. It's something else. No worries here. Or who heard the prophecy and ignored it or simply chose not to respond. For those that were in that kind of a denial it's a deadly decision. And it doesn't cost a life necessarily here on this earth, but something far greater, and that is eternity. Now our theme verse for this month has been, as was mentioned, 2 Corinthians 8-9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We've already studied the first two phrases. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about about that and then uh, how he was rich. And we spoke of that last week, even as we sang about that earlier today. So we're going to look at that next phrase, yet for your sake he became poor. And we're going to use the same passage to at least jump off from this week that we used last week when we were talking about his great riches in Philippians 2, and we're going to use this for context. So we read in Philippians 2, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort Let's bow together. So, Lord, you have spoken, and you have seen fit to preserve these words for us today. So whatever's going on in our lives, Lord, you planned for us to focus upon your word. And so will you help us to do that, to really hear you and then respond. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For your sake, he became poor in what way? Well, we're going to start with uh, John chapter 1 that we also looked at last week. In John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that's where last week we, we spoke about that's the glory. He was and is completely and fully God. And then down in verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. What is this act of incarnation Another theological word, but one that, that we, uh, in so many hymns, uh, we uh, use that word, incarnate, incarnation. Uh, it's a, a word in, in theology, and it is uh, one of those concepts that is as important as any other theological concept there is. Incarnation Verse fourteen: The word that's Jesus, who is God, according to verse one, became flesh. And that's that's it. That's it summarized. Uh, in incarnation, uh, in the flesh, the English uh, root would be carnage, flesh. Flesh and blood. So that's how you remember it. In in the flesh is incarnation. Now let's talk about how he was among us. You go back to the the Old Testament, and we see uh, God showing his presence um, among us in in so many different ways. Um, We start in the garden where we see that communion with Adam and Eve in a way that that no one after them has experienced, and it's because of their sin. Adam's sin. Remember, he's he's our federal head. He's our representative. And So Adam sins. And so that intimate communion with the Father is not just damaged, it's lost. And everything else after that is looking forward to the time when that will be restored, when all things will be made new. And we're still looking forward to that. We get glimpses, we get tastes. But we're not there yet. And so that's the good news of what, what we're looking forward to. So that, that's in the garden, and, and yet that's damaged and lost. But he continues to show his presence. A smoking fire pot, a burning bush, a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud, God continued to show his presence with his people, and then there was the tabernacle. The tabernacle, as God's people moved, was what was set up and what was built right in the middle of the camp of God's people, as instructed by God himself so that uh, whenever people would come outside of their tent, as they looked to the, right in the middle of, of their group, they would see that which represented the presence of God. It was a place of worship. And it was made in such a way that it could be broken down and set up again wherever the people went, and they did that. In the passage that we we just read, particularly, it says uh, in verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That phrase, dwelt or made His dwelling, could be translated tabernacled among us. So what it's saying is that uh, when, when Jesus came, he basically pitched his tent in the middle of us so that we would always and forever know that he was present with us. Now, why, why would God choose the, the tabernacle To represent, to to foreshadow Christ, a thing to foreshadow the one who is fully God and fully man. Let's think about the tabernacle. For their time in the wilderness, they were on their way to the promised land. And those who are in Christ, are on their way to the promised land. Not just what we saw back in the Old Testament, but something far beyond that. The tabernacle was humble in appearance. Christ, by uh, the standards of this world, had nothing. In the way he looked to attract people to them. Now the tabernacle in the wilderness was, was nice enough, but compared to the, the pyramids and the uh, buildings that were structures in Babylon, tabernacle was made of hides, canvas hides. We see Jesus humble in his appearance, veiled in flesh the Godhead. See? At the center of Israel's camp was the tabernacle. Like we we just sang, Christ is at the very center of those who are believers. That's where he dwells, even for those who won't recognize him as being in the center. The tabernacle was a place of sacrifice for guilt of sin. Again, the foreshadow of Christ, who himself was the final sacrifice, the ultimate, the one that fulfilled all of these that came before were pointing toward Christ himself. And when Jesus died, the veil or the The curtain in the temple was torn, not not just so we could now go in, but it shows God came out into our lives as his Holy Spirit came to dwell in his people. Now last week we talked about though he was rich and we talked about his glory in heaven, Until we grasp ultimately how different God is from man, we haven't grasped how awesome the incarnation is and and had to be for him to come in flesh. So back to our passage we read earlier. There is a phrase describing the incarnation, he emptied Himself. Let me read to you again, verse, beginning of verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Remember what we, were, we said last week about that is he didn't think it a thing to be grasped because he already had it. He didn't have to, to try to get something or even hold on to it. It was his and it was always his. But verse 7 but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, what's this mean that he emptied himself? This has been controversial down through the centuries. Some have uh, tried to take this and, and say basically that when he when he came to earth, he so emptied himself that he wasn't God any longer. He left everything that it meant to be God. He left that in heaven. He came, he was, he was fully human, but he wasn't God. And then he took up his godliness later, after he was resurrected and ascended. That is not what it means. And that has caused some to to miss the very nature of Christ. When he walked the earth, he never stopped being God. He made the choice not to take hold of that which was his. Now, again, when we talk about uh, the state, uh, about Christ and his nature, we talk about the states of Christ. You might say, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with that. Well, let me tell you what the states are, and maybe, maybe it'll make more sense. You have the pre-incarnate state. Remember, we talked about that last week. So that's his first uh, uh, thing that we talk about is before the incarnation, where he was, what he was doing. And then we have the state of humiliation. That's what we're talking about this week. Uh, and then his final state, which he is in now is a state of exaltation. He is resurrected, ascended. He rules from the right hand of the Father, and he's going to return to rule forever. That's his exaltation. But let's let's go back to the state when he took on flesh and walked among us. We who are his creation. That's called the state of humiliation. Why is that? Well, it's because what we're talking about is the Creator becoming the form of His creation. The Eternal One being conceived, being a fetus, and being born. The Infinite becoming finite. The omniscient and omnipotent one taking on a form where he needed to be potty trained, learn to walk, add and subtract, use the tools of a carpenter. And it's God feeling the feelings of a human. So here is the the king of the universe being born in a stable. In a manger. When we were over in Israel, uh, we saw what um, they presume was the kind of manger that uh, he was laid in. And it wasn't what I was picturing, because, well, I have a manger scene at home, and we usually picture him in, you know, this little wooden thing that it doesn't look that bad, really, if you put enough hay in it, temporarily. What they showed us over in Israel uh, of, of what a, a manger was, what they would put uh, hay and, and food in for the animals, was, was a huge piece of stone. And it was hewn out so that it, it was uh, kind of in this U-shaped. It was open on one end and, so that they could get rid of anything that was left in there and throw more stuff in. It, it was a stone and I can't get that out of my mind. What, a, what an awful place. And yet, that just illustrates. It illustrates why this is his humiliation. Philip Yancey uh, said, How did Christmas Day feel to God? Imagine for a moment becoming a baby again, giving up language and muscle coordination, And the ability to eat solid food and control your bladder. God is a fetus. Or imagine yourself becoming a sea slug. That analogy is probably closer. On that day in Bethlehem, the maker of all, all that is, took uh, form as a helpless, dependent newborn. If if that baby were here at St. Andrew's today, he would be down in the nursery and somebody would be changing his diaper. Now, that's not blasphemous. I know it sounds strange, doesn't it? And yet, that that's what we've got to, to get in our mind when we're talking about him coming to this earth giving up all that he had and being put in that situation by his choice so why was the incarnation even necessary well it's because because Jesus fulfilled what man needed to fulfill And he needed to be a man to do that. Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now why did he have to be born of a woman? To be human. It had to be that way. Remember that the, the first Adam, representing all mankind, failed and brought sin into the world. The second Adam was Jesus. If there was to be salvation, which was his goal, he had to come and succeed where that first Adam failed. So he took on human flesh. Why? Why human flesh? Because only human flesh can die. And that was necessary. He lived a life under the law and kept it at every point because Adam didn't and we can't. It was necessary. And that life qualified him to pay the penalty for our sin and impute or give to us his righteousness. Now I want to give you three applications pertaining to the incarnation. We've had some each week. The first one is this. To recognize that this doctrine is absolutely unique in terms of what we can relate to as humans, but also in terms of other world religions and what they say about their gods. You will not find this in other world religions. To say that God became man or human. To say that God suffered, other religions call that blasphemy. And you know what? If it's not true, it is blasphemy. But this is what the Scripture says to us. Martin Luther said, The Son of God does not want to be seen and found in heaven He placed himself in the womb of his mother in her lap and on the cross. And this is the ladder by which we are to ascend to God. Now the reality is, God descended to us. But he makes it for us to be able to go to him. Secondly, the incarnation calls us to be incarnate to those around us. To live a life of service. And that's what we've seen in Philippians 2. Remember, last week I said, oftentimes we will talk about how our theology uh, should have application and it should affect our lives. Good theology should cause uh, good and right actions. And so typically we will talk about the scripture and theology and then. Do the application? Well, Paul in Philippians 2 did the opposite. He started with the application and then he went to the theology behind it. And what what the application was was this. Let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he, now, now he gets to the theology, <clears throat> who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, and so on. So, so what, what we are to do is to know, look, look this, is, this is our Lord and Savior. This is what he gave up. He had all of these riches, and he became incarnate. He dwelt among us as we are to dwell with each other and with those in this lost and dying world. J.I. Packer, in Knowing God, said, the Christmas spirit does not shine out in a Christian snob. (laughs) For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives in the principle of making themselves poor spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others and not just to their own friends in whatever way there seems need. So I would submit to you that if if you're prideful among those you work with or you're in school with or in your own family because of the salvation that He has given you, then you really don't get the incarnation. You don't really understand yet what He gave up to bring salvation for us. And then the third application is the incarnation should bring comfort in suffering. If Anyone questions the purpose in suffering, and, and people do. When they're in the middle of suffering, we will ask that question. We want God to have a purpose, but, but what purpose could this serve? And so what we do is we, we need to look at Christ and say, that shows us once and for all the highest purpose in suffering, it was through suffering that he brought salvation into the world. And so we as his people not only see that, but understand, which we've, we've called this series, that he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. We're going to spend time on Christmas Eve talking about that. That he gets it. He gets it because he's been here. And so whatever you're going through, he gets it. And not only that, he doesn't just say, I understand. But for his people, he says, and I'm with you. And I will never leave you or forsake you. It's not just empty words, it's experience, it's reality. She was 15 and he was 17 when they met. Although they were just in high school, they dated and nobody was surprised when after high school they got married. Because of the love they had for each other. Four years and two children later, she found herself standing in a kitchen surrounded by dirty dishes and dirty diapers, and she couldn't quit crying. And and she still doesn't know what caused her to do this, but she walked out of the house. And disappeared that night she called her husband and she immediately said how are the children he said I love you where are you and she hung up she did that on a regular basis Night after night, he would say, I love you. She would say, how are the children? And when he would say, where are you? Won't you come home? She would hang up. Eventually, he hired a a private investigator and tracked her down to a cheap hotel in Des Moines, Iowa. He went to that hotel with fear in his heart and questioning, not knowing what he would find. He knocked on the door, and she opened it and saw him and melted into his arms. He took her home that night, and it was only weeks later that he got up the courage to ask her, why wouldn't you tell me where you were? Why wouldn't you come home? She said, Every time we talked, you gave me those words, but then you came. The words of God are as true as his actions. But he has shown his love, his devotion, his focus upon us, his mercy, his grace, because he came. May God help us to enjoy his deep abiding sacrificial love let's bow together Lord thank you for your word that is always true because it is truth Thank you how you demonstrated your love for us in the while we were yet sinners, Christ came. We give you all praise and glory, and we pray that you would prompt our hearts to worship you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.